Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm joined by Sam Byers to talk about his latest novel, Come Join Our Disease. Sam Byers' writing has appeared in Granta, The New York Times, The Guardian, and The Times Literary Supplement. His debut novel, Idiocracy, was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Prize, longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize, and the winner of a Betty Drask Award. His second novel, Perfidious Albion, was longlisted for the RSL on Darty Prize and the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction, and shortlisted for the RSL Encore Prize. And Sam's latest book, Come Join Our Disease, is what we're going to talk about today. Sam, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe this novel. I suppose it's about a person who, when we start the book, she's homeless, and then she's taken up into a kind of uh, corporate rehabilitation scheme that offers her the chance of a new life. But the the deal is that she needs to engage with quite a kind of gruelling wellness programme that goes along with that and document her progress on Instagram. And she starts to chafe against that regime and long for a greater sense of freedom. And slowly she embraces a set of ideas around ugliness and decay and uh, not working not maintaining oneself until she reaches quite a kind of extreme place where other people join her in that project of sort of personal decay, really. All of your novels, this one included, are set in a a sort of only slightly exaggerated present. What relation does this one have to the previous two, if any? Well, I suppose the tech company in Perfidious Albion makes an appearance again in this one as the tech company that sponsors uh, Maya, who is the central character's journey from sort of homelessness to productive member of society. But I guess there's a kind of thematic link between the books as well. Um, I didn't do this deliberately, but in Idiopathy, the characters are really kind of like paralysed by cynicism to the extent where they can't imagine another way of life. And I think at the towards the end of Perfidious Albion, there's the implication that some sort of resistance or, um, you know, different approach, you know, might be available to the characters. And in this one, I, I really wanted to address 
freedom properly, like the notion of freedom, uh, what we mean by freedom, and how much freedom we really want when we say that we want to be free, and how much freedom we're prepared to tolerate others having. So I suppose there's a kind of, there's a thematic arc there, which which only really emerged when I was beginning to work on this one, and I could I could see this way through the three books, but they're they're not linked in terms of plot or narrative or anything like that. So tell us something about Maya then, who's who's our narrator. Something about who she is. She's someone who has tried to be a kind of quote unquote normal member of society before, and she's someone who feels she doesn't know how to belong within the kind of rather constrained options that she feels are available to people. So she struggles to be part of the office. She struggles to see the purpose in going to work every day. She struggles to fit in in that sense. And so she's already had this time in her life in the past where things have got away from her and she's she's lost her home. You know, she's become homeless and she's slept rough for a year. And then she's offered this sort of second chance. And because she can't imagine herself being homeless anymore, she takes it, but all her previous concerns and difficulties with modern working life come back to haunt her. So I suppose there's a sense in which she feels that, you know, there, there are only two options being offered to people, which is sort of total compliance and be a productive member of society who contributes through the workforce, whether or not you find your job fulfilling, or you can be like totally and brutally excluded and have nothing. And I think what she's trying to shape for herself is some sort of alternative that is neither of those positions, but she she finds very difficult. Let's talk a little bit more then about the tech company Green. They have this this program where she's going to be given a, a fresh start, a second chance. And of course, this is something that's got to resonate with a with a social media audience. So she can't be put into some, you know, beautiful penthouse and given a brilliant job. She's got to, it's got to be believable. So she's put into some shitty flat and given an unpleasant, repetitive job, which we'll, we'll talk about the job a little more in a little while. But this idea of taking somebody off the street who's homeless and sticking them in this flat and then rubbing your hands and going, there, we've done it. We've done this good thing. Reminds me of the idea of, somebody leaving care and being shoved into a place on their own or leaving prison and mm-hmm. going mm. to a, you know, going to a place and, and, and that's it. And, and, you know, society has said, we've done our job, get on with it basically. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are several things going on there. I think, I think one is you're exactly right to compare that to the experience of leaving care, leaving an institution, leaving prison in that, you know, I think we would all like to believe, that um you know the the solution is as simple as kind of getting somewhere to live and and setting them up with a job and away you go but the truth is particularly when people come off the streets they're often leaving a community and then are made to live a life that is much more isolated you know perhaps in a bed sit on their own you suddenly have to deal with all of these day-to-day concerns like bills and getting a job and all of these things and it's you know it's actually very difficult and people need a lot more support kind of through that part of the process it's not a simple just to say well you know you've got a roof over your head there's a lot of things that have to go along with that and I suppose what I was also thinking about is this rise of corporate philanthropy and it's I think it's increasingly popular with 
big corporations who want to make sure they you know have the the best possible profile is to sell us on this idea that huge multi-million dollar companies you know run by billionaires or whatever can be part of some kind of social solution as if they're not part of the cause of the problem and so i feel quite a deep sense of suspicion about this idea that you know massive mega corporations can launder their reputation and sort of conveniently avoid discussing the inequality that they're they're part of causing by you know giving money to charity setting up these kind of schemes to help people and i suppose also on top of all of that you know i have quite a strong sense of what is being offered to people too often i feel that the only options we have available to people are you can be poor and you can be excluded and you can life can be very very difficult for you or you can do you know a really unpleasant job that you don't find fulfilling in any way and that just seems to me to be like no choice and i think it's it feels more and more difficult for people to carve out some sort of life for themselves that avoids those two extremes of existence well also i mean it's not even just that that is the choice is it to say okay you can you can step out of society and that's your choice if that's what you want to do. But I mean, I don't know if this is just because I am English and I, you know, I can't experience this to anybody else's eyes, but it seems to be a sort of very English attitude that we, we hate the idea of not necessarily somebody being rich per se, but somebody getting away with something, which is one of the reasons why we're so down on benefit scroungers or what have you in, mm. in this country. So it's not just that you can say, here's a choice, step out of life, you know, live in a caravan or live on a canal barge or something off the grid and, and do that. But we also have to hate those people. I mean, we also yeah. have to now pass literally while we're speaking pass laws that will discriminate against those people. Absolutely. And and I think there's something actually even deeper there, which is that, you know, um, and this is part of what the book is is driving at, is we've very deeply internalised this idea that work is virtuous. And, and so there's this real sense of suspicion around the idea of not working. Regardless of what the work is, there's almost this idea that everyone should just be doing some kind of work and that whatever the work is, the very the very act of work, the very idea of work is somehow beneficial to the people who do it. You know, like as long as you're in work, as long as you're working. And it's almost, I suppose, like a sort of Protestant work ethic, but that it's associated with living the right kind of life. And so there's this profound suspicion, I think, about the idea of not working, not taking part in that system and it we're so suspicious of it that you know as you say we we make it actually harder and harder and harder for people to you know step outside of that whether it's through a benefit system which is extremely difficult to navigate and extremely punitive or whether it's living with the as as you say the social stigma of living outside of that system or both the mayor is given this job by another tech company pick who you know, have lovely Google-like offices. Um, she has lots of nice-seeming workmates. There's a, you know, a good wellness. We'll talk about this in, in a little while, but, you know, they have a nice wellness program. It seems all around like a pretty decent job. The job she's actually doing, which I'll get you to, to say what it is in a moment, at first glance seems a sort of 
slightly ridiculously exaggerated metaphorical job for the sort of things that you're trying to talk about in this book and you know maybe we can talk about ways in which that is but actually I can remember reading like an article on Vice or something about this it's a job that people actually do (laughs) yeah yeah it is it's um it's a real job she she's given a job really in content moderation which is passing online content for acceptability and suitability so I think when we use at the user end of the internet, I think we we sometimes run the danger of just sort of assuming that the internet makes itself, you know, or everything that we want to be there is, is just sort of naturally there because that's how the internet works. But the truth is, you know, the reason when you open up the internet, you're not seeing a slew of violent imagery and pornography and, you know, in places that you don't want to see it is because people are paid to remove it. And there's been a lot more attention of late on how traumatising that work is. I would say since I finished the book, it's it's been in the spotlight a little bit more. But we're talking about a job where you have to spend all day, every day, looking at traumatic, violent imagery so that it doesn't make its way onto the internet. And I think we forget that that is a human task. And we don't, as a society, take enough account of what it must be like to to do that day in day out but of course you're you're right to also say that it's also a metaphor for you know the the book is very much concerned with digestion and it's as if she is performing a kind of digestive or you know purifying function for the internet Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sam Byers and we're talking about his new novel, Come Join Our Disease. And Sam, we were just talking about digestion, which, as you said, is a, uh, a major theme of the book. And uh, it's going to come up a lot in this second half. First of all, as I said, Mayor's company picked sends her on because she's doing a job that is you know incredibly taxing on her psychological self and so she is sent to a wellness center for a detox and this is you know a thing that she will have to regularly do if she maintains this job wellness let's talk about what we mean by wellness because we're not talking here about fitness which you know is not a bad idea in and of itself but obviously there you know there are various reasons why that's problematic as well but the very concept of wellness is a is a bigger idea isn't it yeah i think it's this idea where one's personal health and one's productivity in the marketplace or you know the employment place become connected so where before you might um engage in certain healthy activities for your own personal benefit. Now there's this kind of added idea that it also makes you a better employee or indeed, you know, makes you like the perfect employee. And what I find ironic about a lot of that discourse is lots of the things that have been sort of corporately co-opted as these great, you know, productivity hacks were in their original conception, technologies of liberation and emancipation. So if you think about things like yoga or meditation, those philosophies were absolutely not about being, you know, a hyperproductive corporate person. They were about a sort of expansion of your sense of self beyond the ego. And so it struck me as sort of fascinating on, on multiple levels. One, that it's no longer enough just to do your job. You know, you also have to be seen to be kind of working on yourself constantly in order to be someone who could do your job even better. And two, that capitalism, as it always does, has kind of defended itself against ideologies that might form a critique of capitalism by co-opting them into its own practice. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think that the wellness industry is where you see all of those things collide, you know, confused ideas about the self, the sort of um, the injunction to be productive, and also a lot of ideas about how we look, what constitutes a healthy body, what constitutes a healthy daily routine, what we should be doing with our time. And I suppose the other thing that really strikes me about a lot of that kind of rhetoric is that it also fills so much of your time. And this is what Maya starts to feel as well. So, you know, to be the kind of ideal employee in that scheme of things, you don't just go to your job nine to five, you leave your job and then you go to your yoga class and then you get up before work and, you know, do your juice cleanse. And so this whole, you know, in the book, Maya calls it being the total person is actually like a 24 hour day project. And we can even see actually that sleep is part of that now as well. You know, people are so obsessed with sleep that, you know, sleep has almost become quite stressful. And so even your sleep is seen as something that is restorative, not just for you personally, but an activity that will help you be at your best the next day back in the office again. So Maya, as you said, she's, you know, when we start the book, she's homeless and, 
you know, we know that she has had these feelings before, even if she can't necessarily articulate it into a sort of coherent idea as to why she's dissatisfied. And then she's doing this job for a couple of weeks and there's a, a fateful meeting with another woman, Zelna. And tell us about then what happens. She meets a woman who has chronic illness and has been able to almost turn that into its own kind of ideology, which stands in opposition to you know all the injunctions we've just been talking about, about work and productivity. And she almost feels there's a kind of, there's a new space that's available to her, you know, through illness, through not having what she calls a productive body. And Maya and her together become increasingly involved in this project of trying to think through new approaches to carving out that space in life. So at first, what they do is they target billboards that they feel promote this kind of idea of healthiness and wellness and well-being to an extreme. But slowly, as Maya gets more and more into this idea, they also begin to embrace a lifestyle of what you might call sort of transcendental degradation and so Maya comes to feel that the only way to to really not be hounded you know back into this constant injunction to be productive is almost to be sort of untouchable and so they commandeer a space like a sort of um, reclaimed industrial space and in that space they just begin to let themselves go completely they just defecate where they're sitting they sort of gorge on food and smear it over themselves and they come to see this as a kind of return to nature not so much in terms of like getting out into the countryside and and having a nice like walk among some trees but giving themselves over to all the forces of nature you know which are really the the forces of decay and because they document that on instagram it almost becomes a kind of movement, but it also becomes a flashpoint for a very public kind of controversy. Hearing you talk about it, as you just have for the listeners, it's it's no replacement for the experience of actually getting to those parts and reading it in the book. And I want to talk about what that was like, using that sort of like degradation and depravity as as a metaphor for for freedom you know as you said well this is not like you know this is not like Walden Ponds you know this is not like escaping to a log cabin I was picturing this as more of a you know a house in fight club but with less incels and with women tell me about just the process of actually writing this yeah you know it, it was a strange experience you know I, I knew kind of where I needed to get to with the idea of her founding this movement around decay and disgust and like disease and as I sort of wrote my way towards it, I was thinking about how I was going to do it. But I was also thinking about this idea of sort of total freedom. Often when we talk about freedom, you know, I think we talk about a certain kind of freedom. We imagine like quite a sort of beautiful freedom, like, a, you know, like a nice sunny space that we're sort of skipping through and we're able to be our best selves. And, you know, what we don't imagine is sort of just giving ourselves over completely and letting go of all taboo and all sort of sense of propriety. And so that was a real challenge for me because I'm, um, you know, I like a nice clean space <laughs> as, as much as the next person. Um, and it's not at all how, how I live my life. 
but I came to feel as I was working on it, there was its own kind of liberation in the feeling of writing it. And I I started to feel that I was I was pushing into territory that I hadn't been able to get to in other books. And I think that was happening because just as Maya gives herself over to this process, I started to feel that I had to give myself over to this process as well. And the only way of really doing that was not to really question what I was writing and, and where it was going and just trust that something interesting would emerge if I was able to see some of those things through. And, you know, sometimes that was, it was disturbing and, you know, it was uncomfortable. But I suppose what I have come to trust is that if as a writer or, you know, an, an artist or whatever, you feel you're getting into that space where you're uncertain, you're not sure, or, you know, you're almost a bit concerned or you're not sure how it's going to go, that is often, you know, a good space to be in that is often itself a sign that you're perhaps pressing at something interesting and so I just had to keep reminding myself to really lean into that feeling and not be afraid of it and then I think there was a period afterwards where I wasn't quite sure what I'd written because I really wrote that particularly the second half of the book quite fast because I felt it needed to have that feeling of intensity about it and so that was a good time to show it to some other people and kind of talk it over and, and see how people might receive it. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you're sort of expecting people to receive it. You know, I feel like, um, I think we forget sometimes that not all art has to form a consensus around it. I think, you know, in this time of sort of rating things and particularly social media and being able to look up all the reviews or like see reviews sort of aggregated online or whatever and often boiled down into a score. I think we're in danger of somehow thinking that consensus approval is like the best thing that can happen to something that you've produced. And that's not to say it's not nice. You know, it's nice when people enjoy things. But I think there is also a place for work that is a bit love-hate. And I'm, I'm very aware that this book just isn't for everyone. You know, for perfectly valid reasons, like not everyone wants to sort of wade through that space that Maya goes to. It's, it's a very dark space and it's, it's a kind of confrontation with things that all of us want to suppress and ignore in our own lives. You know, we don't want to think about the fact that our bodies are decaying as we age. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to think that everything is, you know, ultimately transient and is going to sort of rot and decay away, including us. So I don't kind of, it doesn't upset me that some people, you know, might, that either they might try it and not like it, or they might just feel that it's not for them. But at the same time, I feel that in my experience, the people who've read it, who really get it, seem to really get something out of it and, and feel that there is something there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting, but you know, I've, um, I've prepared myself for, for a, a mixed response and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And I think again, you know, as a, as a writer, it's not necessarily something you seek out, but I don't think it's something to be afraid of either. Books obviously take a, a while to write and to get published. And so I presume that the majority at least of this was, was done pre pandemic and, mm -hmm. And I wondered if you know, the, the past year to you has sort of intensified the themes that you talk about in the book. Very much so. So, I mean, I sent off the, I mean, it, it was finished in inverted commas late, mid to late 2019. And I sent off the final, final proofread PDF 
actually in the first week of lockdown last year. And it, it was actually it was scheduled to come out in August last year, but it was it was put back because of the lockdown to this year. So, yeah, when I was working on it, I had absolutely no idea what was to come. And yeah, I, I mean, I feel that particularly last year, I think, you know, sadly, we've, we've moved on from these conversations a little, little bit last year. But last summer in particular, when people had had a month or so working at home, there were a lot of conversations about how life could be different and whether the life that we all tend to accept as quote unquote normal life is really a life that we like, really a life that we enjoy. I heard lots of people saying that they were rethinking their commute, you know, having had more time at home. I heard lots of people say that they were rethinking how much time they have with their family. There were lots of people commenting on how clean the air in London was with no one driving their cars around uh, and how nice it was to, uh, you know, go for a walk and feel we had access to the streets. And so a lot of this conversation about our work, how we live, how much pleasure we take from how we live, seemed to me to be very, very much back in the foreground again. And there were real conversations about alternatives. You know, I I saw quite a lot of dialogue around, you know, is this what we want? Do we want to go to the office every day and spend our money on Pret-a-Manger coffees? because that's what keeps the economy going. And there was even the, the beginnings of talk about around kind of like universal basic income and maybe a completely different model of living and working. But I think perhaps inevitably the opportunities around those conversations started to decay away in favour of a kind of return to normal in inverted commas. And, you know, I my personal feeling is I, I almost feel a sort of double grief at the year we've experienced. Not only have so many people died and so many people lost people, not only have we like lived in this state of fear for a year, not only has it had such a sort of appalling impact on people's livelihoods, but we've also, in my view, learned nothing. And, you know, the the few opportunities that we had from this situation to maybe do things differently, particularly, I would say, around the environment, we haven't taken. And in a way, our excitement at returning to a life that demonstrably wasn't working and that was actually demonstrably damaging in all sorts of different ways, I find very saddening, actually. And I think that's going to be a difficult thing to deal with this year. And this is our thing. Can I get you to read us a bit? So this is just right from the beginning of the novel. Um, Maya has been uh, living on a homeless encampment in London, uh, which is raided. And that's when she's sort of caught up at the beginning of the book. On the worst nights, it felt as if everything encroached at once. The rain found every gap and inlet, soaking into the earth and rising back up through the strata of flattened cardboard on which we slept. The cold breached all our bundled layers, our damp and matted jumpers, our cast-off coats and scavenged sleeping bags. Often, I awoke to the sound of fights outside, clumsy fingers rooting for hidden valuables, a man's boozy breath in my ear. I slept in my clothes and boots, tucked my scant cash in my sock. People who knew me left me alone. Others I had to hurt a couple of times before they learned. Dawn was always a relief. The night was over, the trials of the day not yet begun. Whatever had passed in the darkness was forgiven. For a few seconds, as the sun offered its first tentative touch and the sky, on a clear day, lost its blackness and became first bruised and then bloody, those of us that lived on the encampment, that stubborn mess of tents and lean-tos, sheets of tarpaulin and stolen boards, 
propped against poles and trees, were briefly allowed to feel all the things denied to us in the night and through much of the day, faint hope, tentative warmth, a moment of ease. So to all the other insults and injustices of that day, the violence of the officials' arrival and the destruction of their passing, I must add this, that their quarters, whether deliberately or not, at our freest. I heard them before I saw them, a low hive-like hum down the road. I guessed the time at soon after six. It was early March. The morning still carried the residual chill of that year's long winter, but you could feel the promise of spring in the air. When I pushed aside the draped tarpaulin under which I slept and rose stiffly to my feet, I saw that others had already gathered and were staring off down the road towards the deepening drone of whatever was approaching. For a strange, still moment, it seemed like the most natural and ordinary meeting of people, a small group of neighbours, hands on hips, speculating as to what was afoot. But then the convoy rounded the bend, and in an instant we were alone and scrambling, neighbours no more. The more military-looking police were at the front, two vans with grills on the windows, bearing black-clad visored officers, Behind them were ambulances, uniformed cops and buses for whoever the task force managed to round up. Lastly came the vehicles of non-specific destruction, the JCBs and bulldozers, the skip trucks, an unmarked van filled with contracted workmen in hard hats and high-vis overalls. We scattered. People ran for the piece-together structures that had been their homes and began throwing things into bags, tossing aside tarpaulins and ground sheets, uncovering their secret cases of food, money, drugs. There were children in some of the tents and they began to scream, which set off the panicked barking of the encampment's dogs. As people shouted to each other, language became an irrelevance. Wherever you were from, a global shorthand was at work. Police, trucks, run. So I've been talking to Sam Byers. We've been talking about his new novel, Come Join Our Disease, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. This was really great. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.